listener production. Welcome to The Brief. It's Tuesday, the 4th of April, 2023. What a GP. The Australian round of the Formula One World Championship broke all sorts of records. And in this ep, we'll do our best to unpack it all for you. Hi everybody, Greg Russ with you for another edition of our Rusty's Garage Shortcast. Don't forget the regular long-form EPS are still rolling out. James Small, the Aussie crew chief in NASCAR, is out very soon, so keep an eye on your notifications for that. In the last seven days, we released one with the 1996 Formula One world champion and the winner of the first race in the modern era at Albert Park, Damon Hill. He's been a regular in the Sky F1 coverage since he retired from racing and was actually a part of the Network 10 broadcast last weekend too. In the commentary box alongside an old colleague in Tom Clarkson who many of you listening will know from the official F1 podcasts and the MC of the press conferences for the sport. The play-by-play or anchor of the call was a great friend in Richard Crail who continues to deliver world-class commentary for the Bathurst 12-hour, Porsche Carrera Cup and more and for the second straight year at the Australian Grand Prix. He is on the line, mate. Welcome and congratulations. Oh, thanks, Rusty. As you know, it's pretty special to rock up at a Grand Prix and call it. And you were there as well working for for GP TV, but it's special. Uh, Formula One is the pinnacle of our sport in both driving, it's it's where the crew members achieve to go, where marshals want to be, they want to volunteer at a Grand Prix, but for people like you and I to tick that box, to have that opportunity, which doesn't come very often, to call a Formula One race is truly something very, very special. And you know, those names you listed off are quite surreal that, that <laughs> I get to play in that pond. It's pretty amazing. Now, come on. I, I What I love, you, we've got a, a job to do when you're in those moments, obviously, but the often very surreal, as you said, or special stuff is when you have a meal together at night time. It's a great team environment there at 10. What was it like having a little glass of red with Damon Hill and Tom Clarkson and reliving old times with Alan Jones and people like that? Amazing. And, and the whole don't meet your heroes thing I think is rubbish because I've met one of mine and Damon was one of my childhood heroes. I grew up in Adelaide. I grew up with the Australian Grand Prix and and that race being here in Adelaide was fundamental to me working in motorsport. That was what gave me the the impetus to chase a career in this in this game. It was growing up with Formula One. I loved Formula One before I liked Brock and Johnson and the Bathurst 1000. So it was it's incredibly important to me. And hand on heart, Damon Hill was one of my favourite drivers. He was the underdog. He was racing for the great Williams team that Alan Jones had raced for. So there was that Aussie connection there. Um, he was in this incredible arm wrestle with Michael Schumacher. And and I was cheering Damon on as a youngster going to the Adelaide Grand Prix. So to have the opportunity 30 years later to work with him is extraordinary. And he is one of the nicest, most down-to-earth friendly people I've met in this sport, present company excluded. Um, but but he the story's rusty, my goodness. And and we shared a car with both myself, Damon and Tom Clarkson driving in and, and that's one of the more stressful moments of my life was making sure I didn't get crashed into on Punt Road with the 96 World Champion sitting alongside me going, I'm sorry, officer, I'm sorry. But um, 
and the sto- the stories are phenomenal, and he's a wonderful storyteller. And, and if we achieved one thing on the weekend on our on our broadcast on Network Ten, Rusty, it was giving Damon the opportunity to tell some of those stories, which he doesn't often get in the Sky broadcast, which is punchy and quick and newsy and topical and much more in depth. I think we had the opportunity to expand a little bit more and to get Damon talking about what it was like to come here in 1996 for the first Australian Grand Prix in Melbourne and win it and the battle with Jack Villeneuve and coming back in the Arrows and barely qualifying the year after. So if we ticked one box, I think that was just such a, a cool thing to get out of Damon and, and get that storytelling. And I love the fact that, A, he enjoys a surf, which I think he did a bit of uh, yeah. when when he turned up, um, and crazy where life takes you. For you to be a fan like that and then to get to work with him all these years later is um, is tremendous. Hey, um, we were celebrating naturally 70 years since GP Racing kind of first came to Albert Park, so nice that you reflected on 96 there and the, and that the Damon got the chance to share a bit of that. Can we focus on the 23 race now? And it is very hard to know where to start in this conversation. I'm a bit pissed at, at some of the mainstream media for likening Oscar Piastri's first home race, first points in Formula One, to a Bradbury moment. Am I out of touch there, do you reckon? No, I don't think you are at all. Mm. I, I drove superbly mm. in that race. In a car that is not a competitive Formula One car, at least in the sense of being a regular point-scoring proposition at, at this point in the season, um, they're, they're still behind the eight ball. And we know McLaren's got upgrades coming and they'll get better. But I loved his composure. I loved his the way he navigated the opening lap. I enjoyed especially qualifying where he did and missing that that qualifying two performance. But the way Nick navigated the opening lap, that that early battle he had with Yuki Tsunoda was excellent and showed great racecraft. The way he managed the likes of Sainz and Perez coming past him and not letting them ruffle him throughout. And and he drove a mistake-free race. Yeah. And he was never that far behind Lando Norris either. And, and the vibe I got being in the paddock was that if you're within a tenth of Lando, you're doing extremely well because he is so highly rated. So no, I, I don't think Bradbury a Bradbury moment is uh, is the appropriate way to explain it at all. I think he earned those positions by staying out of the dramas that some much much more experienced drivers got caught up in on all of those restarts that we experienced on Sunday afternoon. I, he earned those four world championship points. I, there's no doubt in my mind about that, and what a way to do it. And the fact that his first points come in Australia like Daniels did. And like Mark Webber's did way back when, I think that's just a, a really nice synergy as well. But he earned them, Rusty. Yeah, he, absolutely. He a huge launch pad for him. And I, the word you used there a moment ago was composure. Bit of that coming, of course, from the fact that I think they they managed the spread of his appearances over the whole race week. So it wasn't exhausting for him like it's been for Dan and for, for Mark Webber in the past. Oscar's obviously managed and guided by the Webbers. So that approach I think was important in what you just talked about. Let's talk Dan for a second here. I think Ted Kravitz from the Sky coverage expressed almost a little bit of sadness at seeing him on the pit wall with Red Bull Racing, but not racing, and and basically asked him kind of not to subject us to that again, that he didn't feel like it was a, a great look. The, the crowd went wild crazy, uh, uh, crazy every time they cut to him. He's still a hugely popular figure. Will we see him in an F1 car again, in your opinion? God, I hope that happens in 2024, because I think he's still got a lot to offer. 
Yeah, I agree. And I'm glad you mentioned the fan reaction because we saw the same thing. We had him in the studio and, and he was very giving of his time for, for media without that pressure of having to go and drive at the same time. And and we had him in the studio for a while chatting to the host of our broadcast, Tara Rushton and, and Scotty McKinnon. And he was just as engaging and friendly and happy as he'd always been, at least outwardly. And, and I love that. And I love that the fact that not being in a race car, he hasn't let that diminish his the joy of life that Daniel brings to every conversation that he's got with that big smile. And and he was quite open in saying that that this is just a pause, that there's there's plans in the works. And, and I think plans the word. I can't believe that Daniel, with all his experience, with his time in Formula One, with the connections... I can't believe that he's gone into this year without having something longer term in the back of his mind that he's trying to get out of this. I I feel like there's a strategy. This is all part of a bigger picture that will hopefully return him to the grid. But he he deserves to be back in the grid. I'd I'd hate for his career... To finish this way. Mm, Yeah, to mm. to finish with that McLaren full stop. It's just such a not what Daniel's about. The Daniel we want is the one at Baku racing with Max Verstappen and getting the elbows out and beating Max on occasion in the Red Bull. That's that's the Ricardo you and I know personally and that we've experienced racing and that, that we want to see back again. So I, I hope... The other thing, just to put a full stop on that, is Nico Hulkenberg, who performed brilliantly all weekend, spent several years out of the sport. He's older than Daniel. He's less successful statistically in his career than Daniel, yet he's made that comeback. And this year he's made Kevin Magnussen look not particularly special in that Haas. So I think that gives hope as well that there's opportunity to come back into the sport. You can get that second chance. Yep. Unbelievable weekend for Max Verstappen. That qualifying lap was mighty, chalking up the win um, in Australia. A bit like his mate in Shane Van Gisbergen. Both of them are in this kind of really special career phase. The, The other thing for me is... Admittedly, it's only one race, but but if Mercedes can keep this sort of performance up from this round on, surely Lewis Hamilton isn't going anywhere from this sport or from that team. I loved Hamilton v Alonso on Sunday afternoon. It it wasn't uh, an arm wrestle. It wasn't well. It was an arm wrestle. It wasn't an all out battle. They weren't trading blows. They weren't boxing on. You know, they weren't weren't rubbing wheels in a side by side battle. But it was a psychological battle between the two of them. And Alonso would nibble away and get just within DRS. And then Hamilton would respond and pull away and break that DRS window and then put a little bit of a gap on. I love the fact that both of those drivers, the world champions, are still as fast and as fiery and as competitive as they are. And great great games on radio too between the pair of them trying yeah, to, you know. It? <laughs> isn't it? Just, just spectacular to watch the two of the best drivers that there's been in Formula One still at punching on at such a high level. The other thing I like, Rusty, is that clearly the rules are working. So, yes, the Red Bull's got a, a race pace advantage and a DRS straight line speed advantage. But behind that, it is as wide open as F1's ever been. So if you pull Max out of that race, the battle for the lead is Hamilton, Alonso. Science for most of the day was there or thereabouts in the Ferrari. Um, you know, Perez, the McLarens looked half all right. The Haas was half okay. The, the, the rules are clearly working in condensing the field. And, and you have to go back to qualifying one. And I think it was 1.4 seconds covering first to last. That's what we want. We want all of these teams to have an opportunity. I, I, I missed Alex Albon in the Williams, who was, 
I thought was sublime, sublime until yeah. that crash. Yeah, yeah. Three world champions on the podium with you know Fernando, as you point out, joining Max and Lewis. The improvement for Aston Martin is a huge step forward this year. Uh, hopefully, at some point they'll be able to challenge, even if it's circumstantially, for for a win at some point this year. C- can we talk red flag restarts? Good thing or bad thing in your mind? I, I mean, I think great spectacle. Maybe you could argue it needs to be used kind of judiciously. Um, It's the right approach, but was the card kind of overplayed? Yes, Mm. I think it was. Mm. I I think there needs to be some regulating about when it can be used. Used. So the the first red flag early in the race after the Albon crash, and there was some tie bundles that needed needed fixing, so they red flagged the race. I thought that was a good decision, and I liked the standing start. For that one, but it's early in the Grand Prix, so it's a reset. The, the bigger thing for mine is the the regulations that allow you to change your tyres under red flag. I, I think that has to go because it killed any strategic options that we'd had. We'd just seen George Russell pit. A bunch of others had pitted to get the soft tyre off as well early in the race. So we had Mercedes splitting their race strategies. We had some different things going on, and that was going to set the Grand Prix up for a little bit later on. And, and I personally, I think, had he not broken, George Russell was going to beat Hamilton hmm. on Sunday, had that played out the way that the thing had gone before the red flag. So um, the tyre changes under red, I think, has to change. Can't have that. And then I think as well, red flags in the last 10 laps of a race, I think, should restart under the safety car. By the time you get to that point of a Grand Prix and you're leading, I think you've earned the right to lead the field back to green mm. and not have the lottery of a race start and a turn one and like Carlos Sainz being punted out of the race by Fernando Alonso um, or vice versa, sorry, Carlos Sainz hitting Alonso. Um, I think at that point of the day, you've earned the right to get a safety car restart and have that little bit of an advantage that you've worked for for, what was it? I think it was 50 four laps wasn't it before that that last red flag so that would be the only thing i would change about that and then with a full stop on it the the one lap behind the safety car to get the checkered flag they did it because they had to get the order reshuffled on timing and and it needed to happen that way but it was just really awkward that the cars went out and never actually raced again I, i would have the showman in me would have loved to have seen the one lap dash to the line just to get a little bit more uh, a little bit more potential for things to change on that one flying lap. Agreed. Was it a farcical finish in, in, in that sense? Some in the mainstream have labelled it that. I try to find the good in things. I mean, I certainly, it's one we won't forget in a hurry, will we? <laughs> I don't think it was farcical. I think it was just, it was just very Formula One, mm. wasn't it? In, mm. that, in that it was extremely complicated when it probably didn't need to be extremely complicated i would have thought that a safety car at the end there and and i love what they're trying to do in finishing under green and, and yeah. getting a green flag finish but that race was probably going to end under a safety car regardless so i i don't think farcical is the right thing i, I think it was just a, a complicated dramatic end to a complicated dramatic grand prix um, but like you say it's one that everyone's going to remember and I, and i don't think people left albert park on sunday going oh, gee, that was really terrible. We're not going to come next year. I I think from the show that we got, 99% of the 140,000 people there on Sunday are going to come back next year um, because 
overall, I thought the show was really good. I think, I, like you, I would l- have loved a one-lap dash to the line. That's the that's the showmanship answer. Okay, we're going to talk supercars with Tim Edwards shortly. He's standing by. Did the addition of F3 and F2 deliver? And, and I'm kind of asking that as someone who's a passionate enthusiast, a caller. You have close links, obviously, with, with Porsche and Carrera Cup in Australia who have a huge presence there at, at Albert Park, mate. Great activation splashed by them across the GP weekend. Were they kind of okay with it? We want to keep this lovely balance of the international aspect, but the love for our local support acts too. I think Porsche was okay about being there, mm. but the I think the ones that felt the most out of place, to be honest, were supercars. Mm. And in a way, supercars experienced a little bit on the weekend what the support categories on the big supercar events get, which is shortened races and time certain finishes and red flags and things like that. And and they were, in the eyes of the event, the fourth category in the pecking order behind F1, F2 and Formula 3. So that was a very different experience for supercars. I thought they put on a hell of a show. show the, yeah. the, the Gen 3 racing was awesome awesome mm. when they were racing it was a pretty scrappy weekend otherwise and, mm-hmm. and little the little blots in the copybook for mine include having to start with the national flag which was just a, a really obscure thing the fires in the fords have been well covered off and, and well documented about the issues they've got there that they'll they'll find a resolution to um it was a really scrappy weekend for supercars but the product is great to answer your question, I loved F2. Hmm. I'm, I'm a massive F2 fan. That is box office racing. It's like combining Formula One and IndyCar together, and that's the kind of show that it produces. Um, Formula Three, the Saturday race was a bit of a crash fest. I think they had four safety cars, and I think they got seven or eight racing laps, but then the Sunday one was a lot cleaner and a lot more straightforward. Did they add to the program is probably the, the hmm. significant question. I personal opinion, I'd probably bring back F2. I don't know if we need both of them there. And and like you say, I think the balance is important for this uniquely Australian event that we keep supercars there. We keep the Carrera Cups, maybe open the door to one other local category to get that rare opportunity on the biggest stage in our sport. But um, I loved having F2 there. And at the same time, I think that's important because they're the drivers that are going to be in F1 in a couple of years. So introduce them to the local fans now Hmm. and you know they get to see jack do and race before he's hopefully in a formula one car in a couple of years but they certainly put on a show rusty there's no doubt from an entertainment standpoint it's pretty hard to argue about what uh, f2 and f3 added to the program and it would keep what you've just um uh, very rightly suggested there in that balance it would keep our unique nature for our race. Each GP they go to around the world has something a little bit different. Ours is, is renowned for its its racing offering as well, that variety, so it would keep that. Finally, mate, can we come to, to uh, something that has been uh, well covered? I, I am reliably informed as we talk today that they may use facial recognition technology to try and find those who were among the first to invade the track at the end. That was bloody madness. Now, my heart wants to believe that these people are not diehard fans. If you are listening to this and that was you, I hope you're shitting yourself because there are big fines 
for that craziness. Just dumb and downright dangerous. There are probably too many people involved in the end to get to all of them, but if they can identify those that kind of started the wave, I reckon we need to make an example of them. In other codes, you would get a life ban. Now, we played safety messages all week long on the track TV that probably drove people mad. I don't know how much clearer we can make it to you. Obviously, the event organisers have been asked for a pretty serious please explain from the international governing body and maybe security placement needs reviewing or, or where they're... Um uh, where they're allocated at the end of the race and so on to prevent a repeat of this. That was just stupidity, wasn't it? 100% agree with you. And while I understand the FIA, the governing body summoning the promoter to speak about this and, and to haul them over the coals about it, and ultimately the promoter is responsible for the behaviour of the people in it, but the behaviour of the people in it reflect badly on the promoter. Correct. So, the, the issue I have with this, Rusty, is that a, I, I think there needs to be an overhaul in, in access at the circuit and, and the way it's staffed from a security contractor point of view because there were several points over the weekend where it broke down in terms of access and there were people jumping fences to get across from one side of the precinct to the other. There were massive queues. There were bottlenecks. And, and that comes with having 140,000 people in a relatively small area you know, behind turn one up to the final few corners as well. So I think there needs to be a review in the pedestrian access around the venue for starters. But it's personal responsibility. It's this is a just common sense, isn't it? It's common yeah. sense, and yeah. and ultimately, what what could happen out of this is that the FIA goes, oh well, this is clearly unpoliceable. No track invasion. Hmm. So the actions of a few people affect the 100,000 who waited for the right time to who listen to it. your safety messages yeah. to enjoy it and have that opportunity, which you, you don't get to do at all in professional sport, is to get onto the playing field moments after the players have left. So even, even an Aussie rules football game, you can't really do that. They don't let you onto the turf unless it's a really special moment. So I, I just hope that they, yes, they can make an example of some people. And sadly, I think that's what has to happen. That that the perpetrators here need to be held accountable for doing something incredibly stupid and incredibly dangerous, and hopefully that adds some awareness down the road. And then, okay, tool up your security, put some better fencing in, perhaps if you need to. That's all stuff that the promoter can do. But ultimately, it comes down to the decision making of a few people that ruin it for the broader whole. And yeah, I, I hope they find them. I hope they they make an example of them and and try and stamp out that behavior for what is otherwise an amazing spectacle and that entire pit straight is full it's one of the most uplifting scenes you could see rusty isn't it like exactly you, you and i both know it's heartwarming to see those that number of people embracing such an incredible event and i would hate for it to be ruined by the actions of a few silly people um, who made a, a bad life choice and um, and did something really stupid. Very well said, as always. Awesome to be there as a part of the 440,000 plus over the four days. Congratulations again to you, mate, on a fantastic job with 10 and have a great call this weekend on 9 and stand for the Bathurst 6-hour. That's going to be huge. 
Thanks, brother. I will forever have called a Formula One Grand Prix with a world champion, so I can tick that off my list. And had and had a little glass of wine with him. I'm envious. Well done. That's Richard Crail from the Race Talk. You can find the website, lots of great stories, his podcast, and lots more. The Race Talk, all one word. A quick break. The boss of Tickford Racing is standing by to talk to us about the supercars component of that big weekend in Melbourne. Delighted to welcome to Rusty's Garage now, Tim Edwards, CEO of Tickford Racing, who we will have a longer kind of life and time chat with at some stage here on the pod. He spent 17 years living in the UK prior to supercars, and much of that was uh, working in Formula One with Jordan. Tim, welcome. Yeah, thank you. Hopefully you had a bit of a chance to catch up with some old friends there in the Formula One paddock over the weekend, did you? Uh, not as much as previous years, bizarrely. I think, you know, what is it, 18 years, I think, since I um, came back to Australia and, you know, still communicate plenty on uh, on social media, which just seems to be the way of the world now. But, world, um, yeah. The, the, the challenge when you get to the tracks these days, and particularly for those guys, is like, you know, they are just working crazy hours and, you know, you they, they fly in later than they ever used to and they leave, you know, straight after the race. So it's become increasingly harder over the last few years. Crazy long hours for you too, which we'll get to in a moment. Can we, in a broad sense, uh, Supercars wants to return to Albert Park. That sounds like the, uh, the the plan. That was the last year of the current deal. Should we go back? Will we go back, do you think? Look, it, it's got its challenges. It's It's hard for the teams, but bloody hell. Every one of those races, for whatever reason, that track suits our cars. You know, I think I think having the wider track, the fact that they can get three and four abreast, it just it's we always, always put on a great race there. And the interesting thing is Formula One. You know, it's been some of the most boring racing for Formula One. You know, which is uh, they don't shy away from it. You know, which is why they've tried to make changes to the track to suit their cars better. But bloody hell, it suits our cars because, you know, even that race, I think there were six or seven laps um, on Friday, I think it was. Holy shit, they were bloody, they were, they were an entertaining few laps. So, it, 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 you know, so, you know, my view is that we are in the entertainment industry. You know, we're, we're there to, to, to put on a show for people and the track suits our cars and, and it's always a spectacle. So, yes, there's some challenges to work through and, you know, you, it's, it's hard for us because every other race we do for the year, you know, we are the... The main events, and we go there, and we're the we're the sideshow. Um, but you, you know, sometimes you just got to accept that and, um, and and move on. Kind of compounded a little bit this year too, Tim. And maybe you're in two minds as I ask this, from a you know a business point of view, and then from a, a purist standpoint. Did the inclusion of the feeder the feeder categories F two and F three work? And sort of what feeling did that leave the supercars community with? Uh, I mean, from a from a supercars perspective, you kind of ask yourself why. You know, when we do, we do have open wheel categories here in Australia, you know, and I suppose, you know, the, the just talking to the public and that, you know, Formula 3, who, what, they don't, they don't know anything about it. And um, Formula 2, where you can kind of, you know, people can, I suppose, relate to that. It's a bit like our Super 2 Championship, you know, that's the next rung down. So potentially you are seeing people that will be in the category in the next year or two. You know, the, the, the F3 guys, well, you know, they're not likely to be in the category anytime soon, if ever, for some of them. So, yeah, I don't know. It's you know, I can I kind of see the the F two stance, but you know, we have got S five thousand in Australia. We have got other categories that we could be sort of promoting a bit of our own. Um, but my understanding is that's that's locked and loaded for for the never never. So I think that you know that's that's the format we'll see for the years to come. 
Okay, before we get to your own weekend for, for Tickford, some night race talk in the last week or so, and there's a bit of cost in all that, great for European broadcasters of Formula One. Does that create any hassles for supercars, or would that be something our sport would kind of welcome, a, a later start and things like that? Well, uh, it depends whether we're talking about night racing for us or night racing for F1. If it's if it's for F1 only, you know, maybe that frees up more time for us during the day to have a, a longer race ourselves. You know, obviously, if the... Um, if if the day's opened up, but I don't. We know from our own experience the night races that we've put on at, at Perth and in Sydney. They're always a spectacular, you know, spectacular event. So I think if we could be racing at night, that could be a great thing. You know, we know our cars also look great in the, you know, in night racing. And yeah, <laughs> we're already putting on a spectacle around there in the day. Yeah, I think it'll just look better at night again. Most definitely two. Decent, scary fires over the weekend. One for Nick Perkett, another for your driver, James Courtney. I'm not sure what you can share uh, in regards to this just yet, as tests kind of might be ongoing, Tim. What, what triggered this, if you can share that, and, and why are they happening? Well, the honest answer to that question is we still don't know. Um, you know, we got we got the brightest brains in our pit lane together on Saturday night, you know, that essentially the technical directors of, of all of the teams, you know, and they've, they've come up with, let's just call it a hit list of 10 possible causes of it um, to, to nobody at this point can say, no, it's definitely one of them. So so what they did on Saturday night was they came up with a mitigation strategy for every one of those those uh, 10 possible causes and we implemented that for, for Sunday, one of which was the most public one, which was the, uh, uh, which was the rolling start. So look, I mean, now that we're, you know, we're away from the circuit, you know, there's some more testing that can be done and we can actually try and workshop some of the the um, things that have been put forward. I think, you know, everybody's probably honing in on on what it is, um, but it's still not, it's still not, there's nothing concrete as we sit here at the moment. So there's another meeting uh, tomorrow of, the, of that technical working group to, to workshop it some more and there's further testing that'll be uh, put in, you know, some of the some of the potential causes are not even Mustang specific because don't forget under the skin, you know there's a lot that's common in these cars. So it's it might not even be a a uniquely Mustang um, um, related thing. So look, you know it's it's a real concern to everybody. You know, you know there's the the human cost to it. You know, and and obviously James and and Nick were both quite comfortable. Uh, you know they. That they didn't feel like exposed. In fact, James said to me that if we're he, if his car had been able to, he was more than happy to go racing again the next day. Um, but it's also the the toll on the the teams, you know, particularly you know this team, you know that unfortunately for Car Five, it had that what was a relatively minor accident at at Newcastle, which required major chassis repair, and the same car crew have have just copped this, and and fires are shocking, you know, yeah. Uh, 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 a typical accident where it's just got mechanical damage where you just replace all the bent parts. The problem is with a fire. It just gets into everything, destroys everything, the wiring, the hoses, all those sort of things that, that don't generally get um, impacted in an accident. Um, so, yeah, the, and, and even the foam, the corrosive foam for the extinguishers, just the poor guys here yesterday trying to just clean the car itself. So it's, um, yeah, it's, um, you know, there's the... There's the financial toll, which is you know, 
you know, well into the six-figure sums now from the last two rounds. But but for me, it's it's probably more the toll that it's taking on the pit lane. And it's not just this team, you know. You know, the, the other actions happened out through, through the weekends. You know, there's there's a lot of damage happening to the cars that wouldn't have happened on our previous cars. And, you know, we've got to quickly learn from that and um, and make some tweaks to the, to the design of the car to try and overcome that because... We also don't want to change the way we go racing, you know. Love it or hate it, we're a contact sport. <laughs> and um, and at the moment, you know, you're almost veering on the side of, well, don't touch anything because we don't know if it will break. And we don't we don't want to change our style of racing. We don't want to become GTs or open wheelers where they are totally non-contact sport. And we, <laughs> yeah, part of our show is the fact that we are contact. Do you or are you facing a race against time given that the next round of the championship is a big mission across the Nullarbor? You've got to get that car repaired and then get it to WA. No, I don't think so, no. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, we're, we're fortunate that there's actually uh, it's four weeks between these races, mm. so, um, so it does give us a little bit of extra time. Yeah, we've got a lot of the parts. There's some of the electrical stuff and um, we'll need, um, you know, some assistance from outside suppliers for that. You know, bear in mind these cars, there's so much of them that we don't make um, hmm. that we did in the past. So we are reliant on external supplies. But, you know, I spoke to Rob Herod yesterday. They're, they're sitting there waiting for the engine to arrive because the whole top side of the engine was um, was severely damaged by the fire. But they're, you know, they're going to turn it around as quick as they possibly can. You know, we do have the spare engine sitting here, but, you know, the goal would be to try and get that engine back into the car. Um, hmm. You know, the way the category structured this year as well is that, Every, every single car in the category has two engines and you've got to manage those two engines for the year. And mm. we've sort of got a, 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 you know, a planned cycle of when we would be rotating our engines. So if we can get that one turned around, it'll be, it'll be back in the car for Perth as well. As we wrap up this part of the conversation, just in relation to the fire in JC's car, did we get an indication of this happening or potentially happening pre-season or even in Newcastle? And and uh, was it just a unique kind of set of circumstances at Albert Park? Absolutely no, no, um, no knowledge that we could have anything like this, and and not not least because we don't actually know what's caused it. You know, of the the ten possible scenarios. Um, why was any of them triggered, um, particularly at that circuit? Now, we can see from um, the data on JC's car, and I believe it's similar on Nick's car, that, that it actually starts at the start of the race. So as he's sitting there with it on the limiter, um, you know, you can only imagine cherry red exhaust, lots of fumes, lots going on when you're stationary, you know, at, at, at high RPM there. Um, but he doesn't get a, he's the driver, as in James, didn't get his first signal till around... Um, sort of three, four, somewhere around there. He kind of smelt something. And then by the time it gets to eight, all of a sudden, you know, you can see it from the in-car footage. You know, it's really starting to appear on the bonnet surface. So, it, you know, it's, you know, something triggered it at the start line there. What's different about the start there? Nothing. Um, you know, so it's, um, yeah, it's a it's a bit of a mystery. You know, and there there is other theories. There's theories about electrical items um, also shorting out. Um, so, yeah, the honest answer at the moment is, Rusty, we don't know. You know, we're, we're, we're still investigating it and why it was triggered there and, and not prior, why it happened to be two Mustangs. Is that just a coincidence? Um, you know, all these things are, are yet to be answered. 
Cool. A couple to finish. Two rounds in, and these things are always a haggle when it comes to new cars as teams learn um, and the sport you know, tries to find and, and keep the playing field level. Some centre of gravity tests have been happening right there at, at Tickford with a selection of cars from the field. Might be too early to shed any light on results, but even can you tell us about perhaps the procedure involved and, and things like that? Yeah, well, absolutely. No idea on the results at the moment. You know, that's, supercars are conducting the, condu- conducting the testing. We're there of sort of facilitating and helping out, but we're yet to see any of the results. But essentially what you do is, I mean, they've done it virtually um, as best you can, but they've even got different weights between sames of the, cars of the same mark, um, even in the same team. So they needed to do this physical testing, which was done uh, coincidentally after the AGP, about four years ago at, at Kelly's. But the process is the cars are all set up the same. Um, so, you know, ride heights, you know, all those sort of things. There's a, a, a set setup that you put in the cars. And then it's simple as we have a, a big rig that you put the car on and it literally is tipped all the way with the rig and it's got bearings on the the, the, the beam that it sits on. And it's a case of literally finding what is that balance point. And if you actually saw it, it is close to 90 degrees. It's right up there, yeah. And so the car's balanced there and it has an, inclom- an inclinometer, you know, strapped to the car and it's as simple as once you find that balance point and someone's literally there with their pinky holding the car up at, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it's 80, 85 degrees. It's right up there and that is how you find your centre of gravity. You know, if it's, what, 80 degrees or it's 82 degrees or whatever, then mathematically you can calculate your... your um, uh, the CFG, and we, of course, we have a safety strap there in case, so it doesn't. Someone's pinky doesn't let go of it, and it actually goes the wrong way <laughs> and ends up on its side. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a, there's a physical test, and it gives you a very accurate result. So, you know, I'd suggest in the next 24 hours we'll be getting an email from Supercars saying this is what it is, and and this is the change that either Mark needs to make to um, to have uh, equal centre of gravity. Cool. We'll watch this space. Final one for you. The fires naturally we don't want, and you know work um, around parity is ongoing, as you've just you've just detailed there. There are actually, um, as you alluded to earlier in the in the conversation, some good things happening around the entertainment or the action that we're seeing at times. Where in your mind is Gen Three broadly at, kind of from a, a sporting point of view and an entertainment point of view? And I asked that Tim um, with the caveat: we're only two rounds in. I'm very very conscious of that. Look, I mean, you know my view, Rusty. I mean, I, I, for me, it's we're in the entertainment industry. Yes, we're a sport, but we're there to entertain people. So the theatre of our cars is is very important um, for the show we put on. And I think we've had a massive tick with how these cars look. They look absolutely fantastic. So that's an enormous tick. They still sound fantastic, which, you know, uh, you, you, you don't have to roll the clock back too far to when there was all this push to well, we've got to go to V6 and all these things and that would have, in my opinion, impacted our show. So we've retained the V8, um, which, you know, and I think they probably sound better than they did last year. We've ended up with a shorter exhaust system where they've brought the exhaust out of the car. So I think, you know, there's also a big tick for that. You know, certainly the Newcastle Racing you know, wasn't as good as we saw it at the Grand Prix, but that's I think that's a, a little bit of the nature of the track, but also we beat the drivers to death before Newcastle. We've got no spares. Don't crash the car. We've got no spares. Don't crash the car. So so I think they all drove red. I saw quite a few, few opportunities at Newcastle where 
you saw drivers drift in on the inside and normally they would have gone, I'm just going to hold off the brake for a minute and, you know, and, and, and maybe give the car in front of me a little, a little nudge. They actually went back onto the brake at Newcastle to avoid, you know, following through with their overtaking manoeuvre. So, you know, I think we probably, um, you know, probably impacted the show a little bit there, but for obvious reasons, you know, we just, um, and so look, I, I think the show we put on at the Grand Prix on the weekend was fantastic. And so we've got great looking cars. They sound good. They put on good racing. Yes, we've definitely got some work to do in the background to make them a little bit more robust so that, you know, they can probably contact each other a little bit more than they are at the moment, but, but we'll get there. It's no different to car of the future. Well, a little different, um, but you know, um, 10 years ago with Car of the Future, we um, we rolled out cars, we crashed them over the first year, we made changes to them for the following year. You know, the, there was bars changed in the chassis, wall thicknesses and things like that. So, um, you know, we know that we always knew that we'd have to tweak these cars. It's probably a longer list than we would have liked, um, but that's that's life. You just got to get on and, you know, the technical working group have, have got a long list. You know, top of the list is obviously resolving the fire issue but very next on the list is is making some of the things that are that are that are um you know not as durable as we'd like um making them tougher and that you know it needs to it won't be 2024 we're gonna have to make some of these changes sooner than that otherwise we'll all be broke awesome insights for the fans tim and for for those listening to the show all the very best for the next round the perth super sprint april 28 to 30 and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today no worries cheers rusty before we go, the latest IndyCar race in Texas, which has been described as beautiful chaos, went to Joseph Newgarten, winning from Pato Award. From our part of the world, Scott Dixon, fifth. Scott McLaughlin, sixth. Will Power, 16th. Now, McLaughlin and Power, you can find in our Rusty's Garage library. And yes, I know, we need to get to Scott Dixon. I promise we're going to get him on at some point. Another win also in sprint cars stateside for James McFadden. J-Mac was a guest on the pod very recently. That switched to Toyota Power off the back of a great finish to last season, which he really needed, has been fantastic for his sprint car season so far. Well done. Quick shout-out to a young commentator. Sam Wyatt came and joined us at the weekend for the Grand Prix, just very briefly. He's 14 years of age. His dad worked in the NFL in the broadcasting space, and I think his mum's a producer uh, for the project here in Australia as well. Now, Sam came in, sprinkled in a little bit of commentary and gave us his insights. The sport, Formula One, is an immensely inclusive game these days, but to think we could give that youngster, the next generation, a little opportunity, and man, did he deliver great insights delivered with passion and uh, a little bit of inflection as well. I might be out of a job. Uh, don't forget Bathurst six-hour coverage on this weekend. Richard Crail talked about it at the top of the pod. That will be terrific on Stan and Channel 9. That is it for this edition of The Brief. We will catch you next time, everybody, right here on Rusty's Garage. Rusty's Garage.